Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week, we're talking about the U.S. and next year's presidential election. Based on current polling, it looks as if we may once again see a battle between current President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. And as ever, the campaigns are focused on domestic questions at home within the U.S., but whoever wins will have an enormous amount of influence on the U.S.'s foreign policy, how other countries relate to it, and on the U.S.'s role in the world. And that is what we're going to talk about today. It's not yet exactly a two-horse race, though. Within the Republican Party, there are candidates other than Donald Trump, though you wouldn't always know it from the coverage. And we'll take a look at their worldviews, too, and also the likelihood that Joe Biden does indeed stand. Certainly in some quarters, there are strong isolationist sentiments. Why get involved in forever wars and so on? And we will talk about whether that is what the rest of the world should expect from the U.S. now. So I have a fantastic group to join me and discuss all this. I've got here in the studio with me, former BBC North America editor, John Sopel, now host of the News Agents podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. And joining us as well is Dr. Leslie Vinjamuri, who's the director of our US and Americas program. Great to have you, Leslie. Thank you, Bronwyn. And joining us all down the line from Washington, DC, is journalist Laura Rosen. She currently writes the Substack Diplomatic and was previously the diplomatic correspondent for Politico and Foreign Policy. Welcome. Thank you. Really good to have you all here. Well, let's start with this question of what kind of United States we might be dealing with after the next presidential election. And John, perhaps I can start with you just really simply at the beginning. Should we assume it is Trump versus Biden? As things stand, yes, we should assume that because Joe Biden seems to be going nowhere. Now, if he stumbles, I mean literally stumbles, then it is possible that someone will prevail upon him not to stand and say, you're too old. By going nowhere, you mean he's not going away rather than yeah, he's not, he, going nowhere at all? No, he is seems to be, for the moment, determined to be in the race. I was with a close friend of his uh, last week who speaks to him regularly. He says, absolutely, Biden is in there to run the race in 24. And yes, the polls have been bad in the past few days, but things it's, we're still a year out from the election and a lot can change. And on the Donald Trump side, if you look at the polling numbers of how far ahead he is in the Republican primary then it looks like he is going to be the Republican nominee. Now, of course, it is perfectly possible that we are faced with that choice where Donald Trump is either facing the White House or the jailhouse. But I don't think that any of these court cases come to a resolution before the presidential election next November. And that means, I think, that even if there is this, this is hanging over him, Donald Trump is still determined. Now, Donald Trump is capricious. We know that. He may change his mind. But as things stand, as we sit here now, I would say it's Biden versus Trump, the rematch. Laura, do you agree with that? That is what it looks like. And, and in fact, you can see the Biden campaign in some ways needing it to be Trump. I think in some ways they think that that is what would put them in the strongest position because so many people they think will come out to vote against Trump, maybe more than uh, will come out for Biden with, with great enthusiasm. So I think that's how they see it as well. And John has just said courthouse or White House, but you can constitutionally uh, be in both, can't you? You know, he's in a trial in New York on, on local charges that uh, are not criminal. He's in state facing state charges in Georgia. 
and then federal charges in two different cases. So I guess there's no constitutional prohibition on him running while facing criminal trial. But it, yeah, it's hard to believe this is where we are. It is indeed. And these court cases kick off in January and March. And for perhaps the most important one, the Georgian one, we don't have a a date yet. That's for challenging uh, the results of the last election. John, do you think that all this publicity, because all of this, these many trials are going to be on television constantly, could this even be a help to him? Well, it's interesting. I was talking to someone who was saying, who's very much in the Biden camp, saying it would help us if the cases were televised, because you'd have a series of people standing up under oath, giving evidence against Donald Trump. And in the Georgia case, people who've been very close because of this sort of RICO legislation they're using to bring the case. And that that could be very powerful to kind of lift the scales from people's eyes about the real character of Donald Trump, and therefore it would work to Joe Biden's advantage. I think it becomes even more of a circus. It becomes more of a fundraising opportunity. We saw what happened in the New York civil fraud case where Donald Trump is going in there and he's just using it as a campaign stop. And he's using being on the stand as a fundraising opportunity. Rico is the racketeering legislation. We don't need to refer to the Sopranos and so on for your education on, on that. Leslie, so perhaps with that established, perhaps you can take us into our big question. What difference would it make, Trump or Biden, round two? Well, I mean, you know, there are really a couple of different ways of answering that question. One is what many people here in the UK and Europe want to know about, which is what does it mean for America's most important foreign policy positions, whether it's Ukraine, China, NATO, multilateralism. But I think, you know, in addition to that, and those are fundamentally important issues, there is just this question of not only what America does, but what America is. And it's really, I think that's sort of at the heart of all of this, that people have looked to the U.S. It's always been a complicated country. There's always been a lot of division, lots of contestation. But people have looked to the U.S. as a sort of symbol of democracy at work, whether it's protests on the street, um, whether it's disenfranchisement, civil liberties, all those sorts of debates, and that they reflect a certain way of being onto the global stage. And I think that regardless of what happens with foreign policy, it's not just the outcome of the election, it's the entire period that is really fundamentally altering how people look back at the U.S., creates a tremendous amount of uncertainty that will spill over into the post-election period, regardless what policies America takes. So, of course, there is a real consideration and a deep concern if Donald Trump were to be elected. And I should say as a sidebar, I think Trump is different from every other Republican candidate that exists. We like to talk about Trumpism being there even without Trump. I think that is vastly overstated. I think Donald Trump is a very unique individual, toxically unique. And we've seen Project 2025, that Donald Trump has all sorts of plans domestically, that he's signaled that he's likely to uh, revisit the conversation about NATO, about pulling the U.S. out of NATO, about withdrawing America's support for Ukraine. But the other thing that we know about Donald Trump is regardless of his policies, that they will be unpredictable, that they will be erratic, that we will be awake late on Friday night because that's when he likes to tweet at 6 p.m. He sends everybody into a tailspin. 11 p.m. here in the UK, there will be no quiet weekends. So the pace, the intensity, the uncertainty, it's not just the policy. It's the entire style of governance domestically and beyond America's borders that will upset the world. Thank you for that. 
which you put very, very clearly. And John, I wonder if we could home in on one part of that. Leslie said this would change, she means a, a, a Trump election, would change what America is, not just what it does in terms of the list of policies. And I just want your views on that, of whether this would mean that the United States, in a sense, has become a different country, not just that Donald Trump was back there in the White House, whatever social media of his choice, but that tens of millions of Americans at least had endorsed his view of, of the United States and its democracy and that the last election was stolen and all this. So I think the situation that Donald Trump finds himself in is that he has got a very high floor there is a huge number of Americans who think that every word that spills from his mouth is the gospel and a tablet of stone and that therefore has to be believed. And so when he says the election is stolen, the election was stolen. There's no doubt about it. But there is that very low ceiling where how does he get from, say, 30, 35 percent up to 47, 48 percent? And I just wonder whether this idea that there is this huge anti-Trump coalition, which is what happened in 2020. It wasn't for pro-Biden. It was the fact that liberals, the suburbs, white college educated women, all the rest of it, those groups, independents, came out firmly against Trump after having had four years of Trump in the White House. Since when, as well as the erratic messaging, there's also been trying to find accommodation on abortion. He went to see kind of auto workers in Detroit. He's been quite canny about a lot of that. And there are two foreign policy areas which Donald Trump is trying to utilize, which are counterfactuals, but which are effective in campaigning terms. When I was president, I was getting the Abraham Accords. I was doing deals between Israel and the UAE, Israel and Bahrain and Morocco. When I was president, I had a relationship with Vladimir Putin. He wouldn't have dared invade Ukraine when I was president. You can't measure those things. I mean, I think they're nonsense, but they have an effect. And I think that Donald Trump is projecting a kind of vision of America safe with him as president. And so weirdly... And just, just picking up, though, Leslie's point, with him as president, does that mean the United States has become a different country? I think that by every understanding of the post-war settlement of America's role in the world, it does become a different place. I think that we're, we, we've had different presidents, we've had different foreign, foreign policy priorities, but nothing as fundamental as that. And American leadership in the world has been essential since the Second World War and I think that that would be called into question. And I'm really struck by how the British Foreign Office, to pick just one, has always assumed in its many, many strategy documents that the US in some sense always remains the US, but now is having to think again about some of those assumptions. And we'll come on to some of the particular policies that uh, Leslie listed earlier. But Laura, I would love your view on this because I'm really conscious it's very easy to sit, as uh, three of us are now, in London and worry about how the United States is changing and appears to be behaving in, in very you know, volatile and unpredictable ways. I'm conscious that that has become a harder thing to say from sitting within the United Kingdom in the past couple of years. But what is, what is your view about the significance of a second round of Trump for what it means for the U.S.? I think, you know, Biden really has tried to restore alliances and work with NATO and work with the Europeans and Trump already in his last term was, you know, extremely hostile to, to the Europeans, Germany in particular against NATO. You saw, remember the horrifying press conference with him and Putin in Helsinki when he was agreeing with Putin over the U.S. intelligence community about Russia's interference. And that was all before Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022. So I, I don't think, I think as John and, and Leslie were saying, I don't think on 
the Middle East, maybe there would be such a huge difference. And in a way, Biden has has kind of tried to continue with the Abraham Accords and even try to expand it with Israel-Saudi normalization. And, you know, I think they're still working on that. They just, Biden just sent his Middle East NSC guide to the region to, to keep pushing that, as well as trying to get the hostages out from Hamas. So, you know, I think on, on Ukraine, Russia, Europe, NATO, those would be the big, the big foreign policy challenges. You're no fan of, of Donald Trump, but I guess his supporters would say at this point, look, he didn't come out of nowhere. And uh, he represents uh, the feeling of many Americans. First, they don't want all kinds of foreign engagements. And then they, they want a certain kind of development of, uh, of the economy and they don't want to feel patronized or left behind. Leslie, where do you think that that feeling Republican support most widely. Where, where is that sitting now? Well, I mean, I, I guess a couple of things. First of all, I should put my cards on the table that I can obviously be wrong, but I do not think Donald Trump will be reelected. I understand the polling. We've all seen the polling, but I also understand that in the midterm election in 2020, in 2022, and in 2023, Americans went to the polls and they did not give me reason to believe that they're going to elect Donald Trump in 2024. They certainly could but that when you've actually looked at the practice of voting, we are not seeing solid evidence that's pointing us toward what many of us feel is the worst possible case. So with that said, sure, many Americans have seen their standard of living decline. He's managed to do a doublespeak very effectively. He spoke to wealthy Americans, he gave them tax cuts, he deregulated the economy, and he also told white, high school, not university-educated men that he would deliver the goods to them, and he, and he did not. So that is quite genius on his part. But Joe Biden also spoke to many middle Americans, right? And the question, I think, as we look ahead, is whether the policies that he's adopted, that he's gotten through Congress, whether it's climate through the Inflation Reduction Act that targets rural communities, whether it's you know trying to increase digital access, all the things that he's trying to do, can he actually say that meaningfully in a way in which Trump's rhetoric is very, very powerful and real policy, practical developments don't somehow translate to Trump's base. That, I think, is the challenge. John, there seems to be consensus really only on one point in Washington across the parties, and that's China. People might put it differently, but uh, this perception of China as a threat. Uh, you might couple that with saying also India needs to be our ally. I think uh, Democrats and Republicans pretty much agree on that too. Does that mean that we're heading for, if you like, a cold war between China and the US, whoever wins the next election? Look, relations with China have undoubtedly taken a significant downturn. And actually, I think that the consensus is based on the fact that, you know, there is real concern over the way China is doing things, the increasing militarization of China. I know what keeps a lot of people at the top of the defense and, you know, at the Pentagon and the State Department awake is the fact the methods for deconfliction, which when America was facing the Soviet Union, there were all sorts of ways. There were lines of communication open the whole time. And the scope for a misunderstanding between Washington and Beijing, because there just aren't those lines of communication, are incredibly high. And I think that is a huge worry. But for all that the relationship has deteriorated, there is still an awful lot of trade that is going on between the US and China. These are very interconnected economies. These are hugely interconnected. 
And no one is saying, let's pull all the wiring out of the wall, because I think that that would be a fundamental shock. Look, as we're sitting here talking, you know, President Xi has arrived in San Francisco and he's having talks with Joe Biden. The last time that President Xi was in the US, I think he was in Mar-a-Lago eating the most delicious chocolate cake in the whole world, as Donald Trump put it, a few years back when Donald Trump was president. China was very much in the ascendancy then, economically, and it was seemed to be so powerful. The Chinese economy has slowed quite significantly since then. And I think that there may be In just... a way that is very worrying for its leadership. Exactly. It's really struggling to know how to manage that. Exactly. So China may not feel quite so dominant. Now, the other worry is, does China try to do anything in Taiwan when the world's attention is focused on Gaza, when the world's attention is focused on Kiev and all the rest of it? I mean, I... It it seems to me that China play a longer game than that. Kiev, we haven't really gone into the Ukraine question, and Leslie, you mentioned it at the beginning. What about Ukraine? Does it lose potentially its its main ally, possibly with either version of president? What about NATO? Yeah, I mean, clearly the question of support for Ukraine is growing um, more politically challenged. We've seen this play out in the U.S. Congress. Um, We know from America's engagement in multiple wars over many decades that public opinion, public support for U.S. engagement declines the longer that a war goes on. When you see a war where there's not clear evidence that the side that America is supporting is making clear gains, that also makes it harder for leaders to mobilize support. And there will be, regardless who's elected, there will be a moment when there is more pressure on the leadership and where some of those debates that are taking place behind closed doors amongst leaders um, emerge about the future of Ukraine. And those are going to be extremely tough. Trump, if he were to return, obviously takes that into a very different position because, you know, as John said early on, it's very hard counterfactual to run what would have happened if he'd been there, what will happen when he's there if he comes back, which, again, I don't think he will. But we know that it would become vastly more uncertain and that there's a high possibility that he would decide enough is enough. The other thing, though, you know, the caveat with everything that we think about Trump is that we thought he would reduce America's footprint in the Middle East. In fact, in the early years of Donald Trump, the number of troops went up, right? The things that he said he was going to do and that we thought he was doing, he wasn't actually doing. He wasn't actually an isolationist president. So there is a big gap with Donald Trump, between rhetoric and reality. We listen to the rhetoric of Donald Trump. Very hard to know, despite what he says, what he's actually going to do. The other thing I just wanted to add to that, which is that I think that Afghanistan, leave that aside, because I think that was a kind of foreign policy mess. But actually, that Joe Biden has been very adroit in foreign policy in terms of the decisions taken. You know, he declassified the information about the impending Russian invasion of Ukraine. The two carrier groups being sent to the Mediterranean very quickly after October the 7th as a deterrent to Iran and Hezbollah in Lebanon. But what he hasn't done is the educating bit, the communications about why we're doing what we're doing. And that is a lesson that keeps being learned. And I thought, you know, Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, put it really elegantly when he said, look, we have reduced the Russian army's equipment by a half without the loss of one American serviceman's life. What's not to love about having achieved that? And I think the explanation of Joe Biden storyteller in the way that a Clinton would have done that, 
I think, has been a real missing part of Joe Biden and foreign policy. That's very well put, though. I don't think we can just set aside Afghanistan as a foreign policy mess because it was something that Biden intended to do for a long time and take America out of these forever wars. But Laura, I would love to bring you in here. How much do these questions of foreign policy, whether it's individual policies or just this sense of America's standing in the world, how much do you think that plays in November's elections, both the presidential and the congressional ones? NPR had a good story today about Michigan and Arab Americans in Michigan are about 200,000 people. Joe Biden won the state by about 150,000 votes. And many of them are, are extremely upset with, with what they see as Biden giving kind of green light to the Israeli actions in Gaza. And I don't know if those feelings will fade or if, if some adjustments in the U.S. pressure on Israel um, may win some of those people back or if many of them will stay home. But, you know, in some ways, it, it seems like people don't vote on foreign policy, except with, with some exceptions. And in our country, where only a, you know, a few hundred thousand votes in a few states determine the electoral vote count, it, it may matter. Laura, can I just come in on that? Because last week I interviewed for our podcast uh, Mike Duggan, the mayor of Detroit, who's yes. you know, close to uh, Biden, and he was very concerned and feels that the White House has got the language wrong um, in terms of the Middle East and Gaza and the humanitarian concerns that are felt by so many people in Michigan. As you've said, it's kind of got one of the most populous uh, American Muslim populations in the US. And the, the feeling that we've got to take this really seriously because, as we've seen, Michigan, key swing state. And, you know, if those people were to stay at home in 2024, then it's going to be very much harder for the Democrats to notch up Michigan again. Absolutely. And I have to say, like, you know, as someone who's covered foreign policy to the Middle East for a long time, I've never found a, a conflict to date where different groups of people see it so differently. And just watching on on Twitter, the images from the war, it's very hard to tell. You know, each side is fighting for their own narrative and they don't seem very easy to be reconciled. And so I feel for the White House, which is, you know, always trying to kind of come up with a consensus view. There's not really a consensus view among Americans. And there's polling out today as well from NPR showing that more Democrats since last month now think that Israel has gone too far in its war. So even beyond Muslim Americans and Arab Americans, wide swaths of the Democratic constituency have shifting views on, on the Middle East, different from Biden's generation, which had a more pro-Israel kind of centrist take. It's hard to say there's a consensus anywhere. Well, he's losing young people beyond, beyond Arab Americans. I think that's a really important point. It's the it's the young people which are absolutely critical to the Democratic Party. We've seen this play out across university campuses. Um, but the other thing that I was going to note also is that, as we know from civil servants in the State Department and elsewhere, that there is an internal pressure on President Biden to think differently about uh, restraint on Israel. But I guess I would still, you know, say we are a long way from November 2024. And um, it's easy to imagine all the things that could happen in the United States in the months ahead that will radically move the conversation multiple times between now and when people actually start voting. And right now this is, and will for many of us remain top bar, but probably for the average American voter um, will not. So we have there a feeling that these questions don't 
fundamentally determine the November elections, but some of them rise up. And um, as Leslie is reminding us, it, not only a long time in terms of American politics, but a very long time in terms of the Middle East or indeed Ukraine. We'll be watching that carefully. Let's just turn finally at the end to one question of British politics. David Cameron, former prime minister, is back now as foreign secretary. Leslie, good or bad move on the part of Rishi Sunak, this prime minister? I mean, you know, it's been a troubled time for Britain um, on foreign policy, on domestic politics. And um, I think many of us were surprised. I think some of us, I certainly had that moment of remembering the last time we really saw David Cameron in his leadership role, that famous speech. Um, and so I think it was... Uh, Just it remind was a, people which famous speech. When the many he, you know, famous he, when speeches he turned out, When he turned out and talked about the results of the vote and he, and uh, he basically... The, the Brexit referendum. That's yeah. correct. Um, I, I guess for many people, it's also, you know, a reminder that there were leaders who stayed around for a long time and, and thought very seriously and rigorously about foreign policy and world affairs. And there's been the sense of an absence of that coming from the UK, so complicated. Laura, is he one of those UK political figures whom Americans will recognize or has Boris Johnson eclipsed the lot? No, I think people remember David Cameron and he'll be welcome here. And I remember from the, I think it was 2012 when we were having, Obama was running for re-election against Mitt Romney, actually, that Cameron came over. And even though he's from the, from the right, he uh, went to a basketball game with, with Obama and he gave the impression of kind of a favoring that Obama might win again. And so I think that even a Democratic administration will feel comfortable working with him, someone from the more center-right. John, he's got hanging over him the legacy of Brexit, of Libya, of all kinds of, of the, the, the courtship of China and so on. Do you think he can shake off that baggage? No, he's a very skilled politician. He's a very fine communicator. And you kind of get the impression looking at the conservative benches in the House of Commons, that the talent pool is not maybe as rich as it has been. And it's pretty damning indictment that he is, he's not elected. And under the British system, they've had to make it, give him a peerage. So he's in the House of Lords, which raises questions over accountability. So Lord Cameron will not be coming to explain to members of parliament what British foreign policy is. He's not allowed to. But all so of the that House said, of Commons could change its rules as it is able it's to do. It's not going to do that. It's not going to do that. David Cameron will be in the House of Lords. But upside of that is he doesn't have a constituency to go back to at weekends. He doesn't have to be in the House of Commons for critical votes. It means that he will be free to go to the foreign trips around the world where he is needed, where his counsel will be sought. I kind of got a readout of a meeting, you know, a conversation he had with Anthony Blinken you know, within hours of, and apparently it was a very warm conversation. Now, obviously, diplomats always say that, but I, I genuinely do get the impression that they, people feel he's got some heft, and that may give Britain a bit more of an ear, and he will be allied pretty firmly to Biden, just in the same way that when Tony Blair was prime minister, he was able to translate a very warm relationship with, you know, George W. Bush, even though they were not ideological soulmates. And as you said, David Cameron forged a very close relationship with Barack Obama. And so I think that actually for Britain, it's a good thing that there is somebody who's a heavyweight politician, who's got real experience, who's got the scars on his back of previous policy failures as well, to be advocating the British case 
around the world. Whether it leads to any kind of renewed relationship with Europe, I frankly doubt in the time. Whether it does Rishi Sunak, our prime minister, any good is a separate question altogether. You make very good points. I just, the question of the lack of time does bother me. And I happen to see James Cleverly, the now outgoing, now, now the Home Secretary. Apparently but, furious, furious that he's been moved from the Foreign Office to, to be And all the, kinds of questions about whether it was a William Hague bit of manoeuvring to get David, David, David Cameron back. I did notice William Hague's column appeared, uh, praising David Cameron's return, appeared remarkably quickly, <laughs> even by like fast writing been, Almost as <laughs> yes. if it had been written beforehand. Yeah. But I happen, like be, I, ha- I, happen to, I happen to see James Cleverly on the Sunday evening at a Diwali reception. Um, and he was talking to the Indian foreign minister, Dr. Jayshankar, and lots of jokes about how James Cleverly knew all kinds of things about India, but was just beginning to understand cricket and so on. And it takes time to make those relationships. He'd had a year on the job. He'd made 15 big trips. Suddenly, next day, it's David Cameron shaking the hand of the Indian foreign minister. And it is hard, I think, to get away from that personal factor. Well, I, th- I also think that you look at US politics And Blinken has been Secretary of State since Joe Biden became president. Austin has been Defence Secretary. There have not been the big changes. Mayorkas has been, you know, Homeland Security. And yet you look at the number, how often we are changing jobs so that there is no expertise at all. But John, it's more than that, right? Secretary Blinken has been Deputy Secretary of State. He's had a long career working Senate Foreign Relations Committee for, for Joe Biden. I mean, it's not just the time in office. It is the decades of experience that these individuals bring when they, if they ever become secretary of state. And it is a radically different system on this one dimension. It's one that I think for Americans, it's very perplexing. How can you be home secretary when yesterday you were foreign secretary? It makes it makes no sense. At the height of the madness in the UK of the Boris Johnson, Liz Trust changeover period, we had an education secretary who lasted for 24 hours. We've had seven foreign secretaries in seven years. On that note, we are going to have to stop, but we're going to obviously come back to this question of the US elections and dig more deeply into the questions of why uh, American voters are leaning one way or the other. What is driving them in that, Republican and Democrat? With that, though, we're going to have to stop. So a huge thank you to my guest, Leslie Vindramuri, Laura Rosen, and John Sopel. Do follow them all on Twitter or X. The links will be in the show notes. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or major platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow, subscribe. Please do leave us a review. I do read them. So do my colleagues. And to read more from all our experts, or to find more about our events, or to become a member. And we are coming up to Christmas, if you want to give that as a a gift. We would really love to have you and your family. Do visit chathamhouse.org, where you can find the work of all our programs, including the brilliant US and America's program. So goodbye from me, Bronwyn Maddox. See you next week.